I want to read to you from um, uh, some notes that uh, were made by uh, that, that are still present today in the Schofield Bible. Now, Mr. Schofield was uh, one of the, if not the foremost, um, denominational scholars in the Southern Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, and, and he was, uh, I, I know growing up in the Baptist Church, um, if you didn't have a Schofield Bible, you, re- you really didn't have a Bible. You would kind of look down on if you had anything other than a Schofield Bible because his notes were uh, considered to be the final word on uh, most any and every subject. And uh, he was a man that um, uh, was faithful to serve God for uh, a great percentage, a great portion of his life. And as a result, he was due and received a, a great deal of respect. And uh, you can well imagine that, uh, that some in, in the church world might disagree with some of the fundamental Baptist doctrines uh, regarding the Holy Spirit and so forth. But I want to take some, uh, uh, some quotes from the notes that uh, Dr. Schofield in, uh, in his Bible states. Uh, he was an honest man. I'll give him that. He was an honest man. There were some things that he didn't know, things he didn't preach. But he was honest about what he, what he did know. And, uh, and as a result, on pages 6 and 7 of the Schofield Bible, Mr. Schofield in his footnote on the redemptive names of, uh, of Jesus, or of God, excuse me. Maybe I ought to back up a little bit. The Bible tells us that in the Garden of Eden, Adam had a perfect relationship with God because there was no presence of sin. But when Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, they lost everything. And as a result, uh, mankind goes along, and as you can well imagine, just like it's, uh, it's difficult sometimes for you to convey to your children the things that, that uh, meant something to you from your past or maybe your heritage, your family uh, experience or whatever, those things have to be kept on and, and, uh, and passed on to our children for them to understand. And in many cases, even though we try to pass them on, they don't have the same meaning, don't have the same impact on our kids that they had on us. I, I wish I could uh, express to you the, some of the things that I got from Brother Haken. I've tried to give those things to my kids. And, uh, and, and to be real honest with you, I think I've done a poor job. I did the best I could and I did all that I could. But it's, there's just some things that don't seem to translate from one generation to the next. And, um, and I guess what that means is every generation has to have their own experience with God. And we need to facilitate that for our kids as much as we can. But ultimately, the choice is theirs. Well, in the same way, when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, there were a lot of things that his children and their children had no idea that, that Adam once had. People lived for a long time. Adam lived for 930 years after the fall. And so you could well imagine there'd be plenty of time to talk about certain things and, and try to pass things on from generation to generation but there's no way that they, how would Adam ever communicate the relationship that he had with God prior to the presence of sin? How could you explain that? So it was left up to God to reveal who he was to mankind. And one of the ways that he did that and, and one of the things that he needed to reveal is, is uh, what man lost and what he could regain through the work of God that was culminated in Jesus. As a result, God identifies himself whether he speaks specifically first person to say this is something about me or he inspires somebody to say it about himself, God reveals himself to mankind in seven redemptive names in the Old Testament. There are seven different names that identify who God is, who God inspires others to to tell about and communicate who he is. And Dr. Schofield, in talking about these redemptive names, and, and everybody understands this, everybody accepts this. This is not something that's a denominational issue. It's not something that's... Uh, the Pentecostals accept, but the, the, the fundamentalists don't. Everybody accepts this. Everybody understands this. It's, it's one of the clearest things you could ever come up with in the Scripture. And so Dr. Schofield says that of the name of these seven redemptive names, 
He says the name Jehovah is distinctly the redemption name of deity. Now keep that in mind. Because these are all Old Testament names. So he says Jehovah is distinctly the redemptive name of deity and means the self-existent one who reveals himself. These seven redemptive names, I'm still quoting, he says, point to a continuous and increasing self-revelation. So it's names that God identifies or gives to himself that he wants people to know this about him. He then says, in his redemptive relation to man, Jehovah has seven compound names which reveal him as meeting every need of man from his lost state to the end. Now, let's, let's look real quickly at what these seven names are. The first one, and there is no real order. I mean, I guess you could take them in chronological order as far as how the Bible identifies them. But, uh, but for the sake of our discussion tonight, I'm going to mix them up a little bit. The following are the seven redemptive names. The first one we'll look at is Jehovah Shammah. It's translated, the Lord is there. Now, the first time this is mentioned is in Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. There are different variations of this. There are different things where God said, I'll be with you and, and so forth. But the, but the name Jehovah Shammah is in Ezekiel 48, verse 35. And it's where Ezekiel is speaking by the, the, uh, the, the word of the Lord about the, um, the inheritance, the division of the inheritance to Israel. Now, you know as well as I know that Ezekiel was long after the conquest of the promised land. It was, he was long after. He was a prophet that came many years, hundreds of years, after Israel had already divided, conquered the, the promised land and divided up among the tribes. So when he talks about uh, the, these, uh, the division or the inheritance that comes to Israel or is to come to the 12 tribes of Israel, he's talking about something that has a spiritual connotation. And as a result, he talks about a certain city. And the name of that city is the Lord is there. In other words, he's talking about something that has a spiritual correlation that illustrates the spiritual truth where God is always present. Well, there's a lot of things that we could attach to that. We could say that heaven could be called the Lord is there. But do we have to wait to heaven to get to where the Lord is? No, that's fulfilled when Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Now, how is Jesus with us or how is Jesus there with us when he's in heaven and we're here on the earth? Well, the Bible says that the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the church that's been hid from the ages is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what I want you to see in each one of these seven redemptive names is that what God said about himself in the Old Testament, who he identifies himself, these redemptive names were fulfilled in Jesus through his sacrifice, meaning his death, burial, and resurrection. So the first one is the Lord is there. We know that we're made nigh or near unto God by the blood of Jesus. The second one is Jehovah Shalom, which is translated the Lord our peace. Now, this is the first time we see this is in Judges chapter 6 and verse 24. This is when the angel appears to Gideon and gives him the commission to lead Israel. The angel feeds him and there's a, there's a sacrifice that's made there. Uh, Gideon builds an altar and he names that altar Jehovah Shalom because the angel had said peace unto him. And so he named this thing, this place, he named it the Lord our peace. And that reveals to us the redemptive privilege of having his peace. Now, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, my peace I leave unto you because I'm going to the Father, but my peace I leave with you. Not peace like the world knows, but peace that comes from only the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we see that that redemptive name of the Lord, our peace, is fulfilled in Jesus going to the Father on our behalf following the, the crucifixion. The next one is translated, the next one is Jehovah Ra. 
I'm not sure if I'm saying that, Reah, maybe that's the better way to say it. And it's translated, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, we know that David is the one that said this in Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But Jesus identified himself as the shepherd by saying the good shepherd. He identified himself as the good shepherd, saying that he gives his life for the sheep. Jesus identified himself as the role of, in the role of the shepherd in connection with his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection. Not only that, but the Bible says Peter, in talking to the church, writing to the church, said that pastors here are under shepherds, but we should realize that Jesus is the chief shepherd. So when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and sat, on the, sat down on the right hand of the Father, he didn't stop being the shepherd then. So that's fulfilled in the cross as well. The next one is Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is our banner. This one goes back to Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. You remember the story where uh, Moses... Uh, uh, took the children of Israel into battle. Well, really, Joshua did it. But uh, nevertheless, the armies of Israel went out to battle against Amalek. And this was the one where Moses is standing up on the hill. And as long as he's holding his hands up, they win. And when he lets his hands down, when he gets tired and lets his hands down, then they start losing the battle. Well, after the great victory that was won over Amalek, Moses built an altar, a memorial unto the Lord. And he called that altar, the Lord our banner or victor is what it really means. This is the Lord our victory. And we know that our victory is through Jesus. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith in what? Faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So the Lord, our banner or our victory comes through Jesus. Paul said it this way. He said, thanks be to God, which giveth us, giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The next one is Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord, our righteousness. This goes back to Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 6. We certainly, this is the easiest one for us to identify because the Bible says Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They had a promise of righteousness in the Old Testament, but we've got the real thing because of the shed blood of Jesus. And there's only one way to be righteous, and that is by accepting the shed blood of Jesus as a personal sacrifice. So that gift of righteousness is our redemptive privilege today. Finally, the last one, the last of the seven is Jehovah Rapha, and that's over in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. This is after they come to a place which had bitter waters, and God gives Moses instruction to cast a stick, a certain stick, literally a branch of a tree, signifying a type of the cross, into the waters, and it made the, the water sweet. Notice the last part of verse 25. It says, and he made an ordinance... And there he proved them. In other words, he established something. This is not just a one-time event. He's establishing an ordinance. Now, an ordinance would be like a feast. The feast of Passover was an ordinance that he established, that established for Israel. And he said, this is what you do every year. The different feasts. There were different feasts in Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles and so forth. There were different uh, elements. There were different rituals. I'm not sure what, what better word to use, but these are all ordinances that God commanded for Israel so that they would remember who he is. We have ordinances in the church today. Communion is an ordinance. Baptism is, is an ordinance. And these ordinances are identified so that we would know and recognize the significance of certain activities of the church because of what Jesus has fulfilled for us through the, his work on the cross. So he said he made an ordinance. Not only did he, did he purify the waters for them, but there he made a, a statute, made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. 
and said, verse 26, if thou will hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put literally allow none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon or allowed upon the Egyptians. For, here's the redemptive name, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, let me, give me, let me stop for a minute and give you a little backstory on this. They've just come out of Egypt. This is the first uh, event, first time God speaks to Israel after they've crossed the Red Sea and the, uh, the Pharaoh's army was destroyed and so forth. This is the first place they really stop after crossing the Red Sea, expecting to find clean water or water that does them some good so they can drink and wash and do what, all the things that they need to do. And, and the water is not fit for anything. It's not fit for drinking. It won't sustain them. So God gives Moses instructions on how to purify the water. And the purification of that water, which is a type of mankind, is to cast the tree, which is a type of the cross, in the midst of the waters. And God makes an ordinance for them. He says, I didn't just make the water good for you. This means something. This means I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, the, the, the words that are used, the Hebrew structure of this, uh, this sentence, this scripture, is, uh, is really uh, applicable or, or appropriate or proper, correct, in, in one of two ways. And, and usually when you've got that in the Hebrew, it can either be one or the other or it can be both. I think in this case it's both. Because it means I am the Lord that healeth continuously, will heal you from here on out. I certainly think that's applicable. We can prove that by the scripture. But it also can mean I am the Lord that healed past tense. I am the one that has already healed you. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember in, uh, uh, in the Passover, just before they left Egypt, God instructed Moses to kill the Passover lamb, each house to kill a lamb, and put the blood of the, the, the lamb over the doorpost. And when the angel of death saw that blood on the doorpost, he'd pass over that house. But that's not all they were supposed to do with the Passover. They were supposed to roast the lamb after they killed it and took the blood and applied it to, the, to their house. They were supposed to take the lamb and eat the lamb and not leave any of it left over. And if it was too big a lamb for one household, then two households would get together or whatever. But the, the instruction was to eat all of it. In other words, partake of every bit of it for the strength for their journey. Now, the word strength is interesting there when the Bible uses that term for the strength of their journey because what did they need strength for? Well, they've been slaves for 400 years. Now, the Bible makes an interesting comment in Psalm 105, verse 37, I believe it is. It says, he brought them forth with silver and gold. We know what that was. They went and, and King James says borrowed jewels. That, literally, what they did is they went and demanded payment for being slaves for 400 years. And the people of Egypt willingly gave it because they're ready to get rid of them and get rid of all these plagues. They recognized that unless we let these people go, we're liable to all be destroyed. And so they were glad to give up their jewels and, and gold and, and all the things that they had and, uh, and literally pay, if you will, the, uh, the children of Israel to leave their land, leave their country. And so the Bible says he brought them forth. God brought Israel forth with silver and gold. Now, the last part of verse 37 of Psalm 105 says, and there was not one feeble among them. Now, folks, these are not just young people coming out of Egypt. You got a lot of old folks. How is it that there was not one feeble person among them? Now, it doesn't say, and most of them were strong. It says there was not one feeble among them. How is that possible? We know at a, at a conservative estimate there were 2 million people. 
maybe more. But most people estimate between two and three million of them that came out of Egypt. How do you get a crowd of, of, of any two million people? We just take the low number. How do you get two million people of any size, any age, any group, any heritage, any anything? How do you get two million people together and there's nobody feeble among them? Now, feeble means sick. Feeble means weak. You can well understand that if you would be, if anybody had a sickness among them or, or upon them, then they would be considered feeble. It doesn't just mean there was nobody that was weak. It means there was nobody weakened by sickness. Something had to have happened for the Bible to specifically tell us that they came forth with silver and gold and that there was not one feeble among them. We know what happened to cause them to come forth with silver and gold. That wasn't just an, uh, um, uh, an accidental occurrence. That was something that they actively went out into among the people and God actively worked on their behalf so that the people of Egypt actively, determinedly gave them silver and gold and jewels and all the other stuff that they had, right? In other words, something happened. There was something that transpired that caused them to be with silver and gold. Well, why in the world would the Bible identify and attach to that a, a phrase talking about the condition of Israel coming out of Egypt and saying there was not one feeble among them unless there was also an equal action or an event or activity or something that took place that caused that to, take, to be the case. Otherwise, why wouldn't the Bible say, and God just happened to, to move upon the people of Israel to come out of Egypt at a time when everybody was healthy? See, the fact that the, the sentence, the, the, the scripture is constructed in such a way in Psalm 105, verse 37, which is a song of gratitude for what God has done for Israel. He brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. It, 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 it implies at the very least, it implies an equal action for both parts of the verse. Well, what action could possibly have taken place to cause the people of Israel to be absent from sickness? Two to three million people and no sickness among them. Well, the only thing that we have any, any uh, legitimate reason to suspect as far as the action or the activity that took place is right here in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, where God said, here's the ordinance, here's the statute, here's the commandment that I'm giving you. If you'll walk in my ways and keep my commandments, I will allow none of the diseases upon you which I allowed upon the Egyptians. So he's making a clear distinction between Israel and Egypt. A clear distinction, which is a type of a, the difference or the distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. Egypt is always a type of sin of the world. So he says, if you keep my commandments, I will not allow, meaning God has something to do with it, any of the sicknesses among you that have come upon the people of Egypt for because I am the Lord that healed you. That was me, he's saying, I believe. I believe God's saying that was me that healed all of you so that you were strengthened and made whole so that you could make this journey. And we've got further to go yet. I am the Lord that healeth thee. That's why I believe the word is used and it didn't have to be used this way. There are other words that could have been used in the Hebrew language to mean one or the other. I am the Lord that healeth continuous action or I am the Lord that healed one time in the past. Yet God seems to inspire Moses to use a word that means both. For that reason, I think it does mean both. I'm the one that healed you when you came, when you took, partook of the Passover. 
And I'm the one that will continue to do things for you to bring healing, just like I made the waters pure for your well-being. Now, let me ask you a question. Of these seven different names that we looked at, and we'll go over them again real quick, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is present, or the Lord is there. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Ra, the Lord is our shepherd. Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide an offering. Did I skip that one? I think I did. Okay. Well, that one is over in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 14. That's used when, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Abraham took uh, Isaac, his son, up on the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. When, um, uh, when Isaac asked, Isaac is carrying everything up the mountain, and he says, well, we've got everything. We've got stuff for the fire, and we've got the wood, and we've got everything that we need, but we don't have a, an offering. We didn't bring a lamb with us. And uh, Jacob, um, Abraham, says the Lord will provide himself an offering. Well, after God holds his hand, or the angel stays his hand from killing Isaac on the mountain, and he sees the, the ram stuck in the, the, um, the bush, and they make that sacrifice, they name that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord our offering. Well, who is our offering? Jesus. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is our offering. He's the sacrifice to be made for us and in our place. Well, we know that that's provided or uh, uh, completed in Jesus. Jehovah-Nisi, the Lord our banner, is completed in Jesus. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness is completed in Jesus. And Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our physician. Why is that the only one that the church says doesn't apply for today? And not only that, but who has the authority to change God's name from I am the Lord that healeth thee to I was the Lord that healeth thee? You wouldn't do that with righteousness, would you? The Lord our righteousness. You would, nobody would say the Lord was Israel's righteousness because he wasn't. He gave them a promise of it. But it wasn't fulfilled for Israel. It was fulfilled for those that make Jesus the Lord of their lives. Right? Who would say the Lord was their shepherd, but not ours? Nobody comes to Psalm 23 and says, well, that doesn't belong to us today. That's one of everybody's favorite scriptures. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, when? Has that been done away with? Or is that for today? That's for today. All of the seven redemptive names of God were redeemed, were fulfilled and completed in Jesus, which means not only did they apply to Israel to whatever degree they did, but they apply to you and me in the church. Now turn with me over to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. They come out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 15 tells us about how God identifies himself. I am the Lord that healeth thee. I mean, I believe that means, as I've already said, I believe that means that God healed them through the Passover and he is their continuous healer. Now, 19 years go by. You know the story how they come to the edge of the promised land and they refuse to, to believe God. And so they're condemned to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And, uh, and the Bible scholars tell us, and I don't have any way to, to verify this one way or the other, but Bible scholars tell us that 19 years go by from the time that they come out of Egypt or, or start their 40 years in the wilderness. I guess that's a more appropriate place to start counting. But 19 years or almost half the time that they're going to be wandering in the wilderness uh, occurs or goes by. And there's a certain guy by the name of Korah. And he stands up and he, he complains because Moses is trying to, he says Moses is trying to usurp a position among the people that he shouldn't have and, and all this kind of stuff. And bad things happen. 
because uh, just to kind of give you the recap of the story, God separates Korah and his family and all the people of their uh, you know, extended family and so forth and the people that have joined themselves to them uh, in, in, this, uh, in this attitude, in this um, uh, complaint against Moses. And Moses just stands up in front of the people and says, God's going to show you today who his man is. He says, if these guys die a natural death, if they just fell down like they had heart attacks, then people would say, well, that was just a coincidence. I guess they just got scared and fell down or something like that. But he said, if they die an unnatural death, then you'll know it was God. He said, if the ground swallow opens up and swallows them whole and then closes up on top of them, then you'll know that's God. Well, that's exactly what happens. And there were others that were joined to Korah in, uh, in their attitude against Moses that weren't there. And so a plague comes against them and, and 250 men that stood with Korah died at the same time. And then the Bible says that there were others that, uh, that spoke against Moses and, uh, and started complaining about Moses has killed the people and so forth. And uh, let's start reading in verse 44. Numbers chapter 16, verse 44. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, trying to save the people of Israel. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into, under the congregation. And notice this phrase, And make an atonement for them. And make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord, and the plague is begun. Now, we don't know what this plague is. But we know that God is judging the people for their sin against Moses. And so what is the answer for sin? Well, the Old Testament answer for sin was an atonement. You remember part of the rituals that God set up and established with the, the temple sacrifice or the temple rituals and so forth was the offering of the lamb one day a year on the day of atonement to make a one once a year sacrifice for the sins of israel now atonement literally means to cover over and that's all that the, that israel could have under the old covenant that's all anybody could have was a covering over in other words there had to be some action taking place usually it was the shedding of blood not in every case but usually it was the shedding of blood there had to be an action that was taking place that took place, that God was able to look at the action and the sacrifice that was made on behalf of the people for the sins that he committed so he could look away from their sins and look at the action, look at the sacrifice. Well, Moses knows this. And Moses knows the only way to stop this plague, whatever it was, I don't know if it was sickness or disease, I think, I think it must have been to some degree, but whatever it was, it, doesn't, it, it speaks of it as a plague, the Bible identifies it as a plague. So whatever this thing was, God or Moses knows that the only way to appease God is to do something about the sin. If he doesn't fix the sin problem, then nothing can, nothing can be done. This thing will wipe out all, all of Israel. So he tells Aaron to take a censer and put fire therein and incense. Now, in this case, the atonement was not the shedding of blood. It was an incense. And, he, and I assume this is because time is of the essence. They didn't have time to make a sacrifice. If he had done that, all of Israel would have died. So he says, take a censer and put fire therein and go quickly under the congregation and make an atonement for them for there is wrath gone out from the Lord and the plague is begun. Verse 47, and Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation and behold, the plague was begun among the people and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. 
Now, they that died in the plague were 14,700 besides all that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. Now, what was this plague? I don't know if it was sickness or disease or not. I'm inclined to think that it was in some manner or, or another, but people are dying pretty quick. So whatever this is, I mean, it's taking hold of people in a hurry. So whatever this was, it was judgment. It was righteous judgment for the sins of the people. Folks, you need to understand something. People have some kind of wrong ideas about God, how he's sitting in heaven waiting to catch people doing the wrong thing. If that were the case, we'd be gone already. God's not looking for a reason to pronounce judgment upon you, but sin must be answered for. Somebody's got to answer for sin. If not you, somebody in your place or as your substitute. And thank God that's what Jesus did. But in this case, the sin has to be answered for. Now, the people don't have to answer for it. Moses has, answer, has Aaron answer for it for them as a substitute or in their place. But what I want you to see is very simply this. When the action of the atonement takes place, God is able to look away from the sin and stop the righteous judgment upon the people. But notice the fact that it says twice in these scriptures, the plague was stayed. The plague was stayed. Now, what does that mean? That means that anybody that had this plague, if it was sickness or disease, anybody that had this plague was healed of it. It means nobody else died. Now, if there was one person among all these millions of people, if there was one person that assume it was sickness of some type, assume it was something that was taking hold of them in a hurry, maybe it was, and, and even if it wasn't sickness, if it was something like that we would, might uh, uh, correlate or compare it to a stroke or, or something along those lines. It had to be something physical. Had to be something physical because it's called a plague. I mean, if God's just snuffing people's lives out, it wouldn't be called a plague, would it? The Bible doesn't call the death of the firstborn in Egypt a plague. We sometimes refer to it as a plague, but it wasn't. It was the death of the firstborn. It was the angel of death that was going through and snuffing out people's lives. That wasn't sickness or disease. And so the Bible doesn't call it a plague. It calls it the angel of death that went through and overlooked the the houses that had blood on the doorposts. So it has to be something physical. Has to be. I don't know what it is. And I, I, you know, I could guess just like you could guess, but who knows? But I do know this. I know for the Bible to be accurate and truthful when it said the plague was stayed, whoever had the beginnings of this thing had to be healed from it. That means not one person could have been left with any trace or hint or residuals from this plague, whatever it was. In other words, not only was the forgiveness of sin in the Old Testament type of the atonement, which everybody agrees is fulfilled in Jesus, Not only was there forgiveness of sin, but there was the stoppage of harm to the physical body. That's the only way it could be accurate when it says the plague was stayed. Now turn with me over to Numbers chapter 21. This is 20 years after this. This is toward the end. This is 39 years into their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 21, uh, where do we want to start reading on this? Um, 
Let's start reading in verse 4. It says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Egypt. That means to encircle it. And the soul of the people was much discouraged by the way. And the people spoke against Moses, against God, and against Moses. Wherefore, here's what they said, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Folks, they're singing that same refrain 39 years later after God brought them out. Can you see why this generation had to die out if they're going to take the promised land? I mean, for goodness sakes, learn a lesson. You know? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. In other words, we're tired of manna. Now, don't be grateful for what you've got. Complain about it. Verse 6, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Now, I, I really don't like this translation. It gives people the wrong idea about God. They were already in the wilderness where the Bible says was full of poisonous snakes or fiery serpents. The miracle is, how did they go for 39 years and these fiery serpents not get in the camp? The answer to that is very simple. Only time they ever saw these fiery serpents is when they sinned against God and sinned against God and Moses by speaking against them. So they brought it on themselves. They're in a land that's filled with fiery serpents. When they step outside of the protection of God's word or, or disobey God's commandments or murmur against God, then that's when bad things happen. So what do they do? They murmur and murmur and murmur and murmur and murmur. This is just one of the means whereby their disobedience brought a curse upon them. So God didn't send the fiery serpents in that sense. He allowed it, but he didn't really have any choice because they rebelled against his word. Can you see that? That has to be true. God can't be on the making people sick side of the street and the healing people side of the street. If that were the case, then he's schizophrenic and you could never know what his will is. And faith begins where the will of God is known. If you can't know, and this is the big thing, this is the, the number one reason why many people never receive their healing. They don't become convinced that it's the will of God for them to be well. And the translators didn't help us with a lot of these verses. This is one of them in my opinion. So the Lord allowed fiery serpents among the people. Literally the fiery serpents came in among the people. And they bit the people and much of the people of Israel died. So we've got a physical affliction caused by their sin and the people came to moses and said we have sinned they know what the problem is they've learned this much in 39 years every time we mess up bad things happen you'd think that'd be an incentive for them to quit doing that that doesn't seem to be the case so they came and they said we have sinned for we have spoken against the lord now folks i got to tell you if it's the will of god for them to be bitten by the fiery serpents who cares whether they sinned or not Sovereignty of God, folks, will come up and say, well, God's behind all this stuff that happened. Then why did they, then why did the people attribute it to their own sin? They seem to understand how it worked. They didn't come to Moses and say, God, or Moses, you're going to have to ask God, why does he want this to happen to us? Why did God and his sovereignty send these fiery serpents among us? They knew exactly why they were there. They said, we've sinned. This is our fault. This is not God's fault. They didn't even attribute the fiery serpents to God. They said, we've sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now, how is this going to happen? How is this healing and forgiveness? They've got two problems. 
One is the sin. And again, remember, sin has to be paid for. Man has to give God an opportunity to look at an action that's made as a sacrifice or a covering for sin so that God can turn away from looking at the sin itself. And so, therefore, righteous judgment can be stayed. So how's this going to work? Folks, same answer is, is, it's the same answer every time. This is not some new way. It's not some mystery. Well, how are we going to find out from God what to do in this case? It's always the same answer. Sin has to be paid for. So how's it going to be paid for? The Lord said unto Moses, verse 8, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. That doesn't speak of shedding of blood. doesn't speak of the burning of incense. Verse 9, And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if any serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Notice what it says. It says that the key, the answer for both the sin and the sickness, the bodily affliction that's taken place because of their sin is the same solution for both problems. That is, Anybody that looks on the serpent of brass, if he beholds that, he shall live. Now, notice from, the, from God's standpoint, healing in this case, just like in Numbers chapter 16, just like in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, healing in all of these cases, which is God's example to us of his attitude toward sickness and healing. In every case, healing is universal. It is not, however, unconditional. But it is universal. God said, whoever has been bitten by the snake, if he looks upon it, he shall live. It's your choice whether to look, isn't it? In the same way, forgiveness of sins... What we know of redemption, forgiveness of sins is really an Old Testament term like atonement. Redemption is a New Testament term. Both, whichever word you want to use to describe it, the work of Jesus, the accomplished work of Jesus, is universal, but it's not unconditional. You remember in Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2, David's writing the psalm and he, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, bless the Lord, uh, and, and forget not all of his benefits. Verse 2 tells us what the, two of those benefits are. He speaks of others, but we'll stop with the, the first two. Who forgiveth all our iniquities, who healeth all our diseases. Now, folks, is there anybody in the body of Christ that say that Jesus did not pay the price for everybody's sin? Even sovereignty of God, folks, won't argue that. They may, they may say that it's not God's will for everybody to be saved. But nobody argues that Jesus paid the price for everybody's sins. If you just happen to be on God's lucky list, then you're in good shape. Sovereignty of God, folks say. If you happen to be one of the chosen, one of the elect, then you're in. Why? Because Jesus died universally for what we will call loosely the forgiveness of sins. He really died for more than that. Because under the old covenant, forgiveness of sins was the covering over. It was giving God something else to look at so he could look away from man's sin. Jesus didn't forgive us of our sins. He redeemed us from sin. Which means he didn't cover them over. He didn't give God something else to look at. He removed the sin of mankind by being made sin for us. He was being, he was, because his was righteous blood, a man's blood absent from sin 
holy blood, in other words, he was able to make a one-time eternal sacrifice that removed sin and the punishment thereof from mankind. Well, who is that for? Well, the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world for the sins of the world. The sins of all men. John said, behold, the son of God, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's universal, isn't it? That's everybody, isn't it? But isn't the Bible pretty clear that everybody, not everybody will be saved? Well, how is it possible that Jesus died for everybody's sin, but not everybody's going to be saved? Well, the Bible says that there are conditions attached. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 tells us what those conditions are. Number one, the first condition is you've got to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, what does that imply? That implies that we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And then secondly, God raised him from the dead. That's what's implied or that's what's meant by to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. You've got to know why God raised him from the dead because he died the death as a substitute for mankind, a sacrifice and a substitute for mankind. The second condition, therefore, is in Romans chapter, nine, Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, which says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as your Lord. What is the result? It, meeting those two conditions and the implication thereof, thou shalt be saved. So salvation, redemption, the removal of sin, the gift of righteousness, any and all of those terms apply. You can plug in whichever you want. The fulfillment, the completion of the forgiveness of sins of the Old Testament is universal. Conditional, but it's universal. Well, what about sickness? Why does the church argue so much about sickness? Psalm 103, again, says, Forget not all of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities? Who healeth all thy diseases? Why would the all concerning diseases not be as inclusive as the all that's spoken of about iniquities? Forgiveth all our iniquities. Why is that all inclusive? Why is that universal? And the church says that healing, the healing of all our diseases is not universal. How is that possible? How is it the church, and it's it's the same thing, the church tries to change one of the redemptive names of Jesus from I I am the Lord that healeth thee to I was the Lord that healeth thee. But the Bible doesn't bear that out. In the same way that, that redemption from sin, the removal of sin is universal but not unconditional, so also is healing from all disease universal but not unconditional. It is conditional. What are the conditions for healing? Well, the conditions for healing are just exactly the same ones as the conditions for the redemption or righteousness, the removal of sin. We've got to believe that Jesus, who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. In other words, to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead concerning sins is the same belief that we have to have Concerning sickness, God raised Jesus from the dead because at the same time he paid the price for sin, he took stripes upon his back and shed blood for the healing of all disease. But that's only half the story. Just like that's only one of the two conditions for redemption from sin, it's only one of the two conditions for redemption or salvation or healing for the physical body. The second is, just like you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, meaning Savior from sin, you've got to confess Jesus as the healer of your body.
Now, does the Bible bear this out? Yeah, it does. Remember Exodus chapter 15, verse 26? God purified the waters, and there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and he proved them. He said, if you will keep my statutes and walk in my commandments, I will allow none of the sicknesses upon you, literally none of the sicknesses of the world upon you, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Turn with me over to James chapter 5. Here's the ordinance, the New Testament ordinance for the church concerning healing. James chapter 5, verse 14. Is any sick among you? The implication, the question itself implies there shouldn't be. Why? Because God brings, brought the example that we have, the Old Testament example that we have that was fulfilled in Jesus is he brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one people among them. The church should be able to stand up and say God has brought us out of spiritual death with silver and gold and there's not one people among us. That's the picture that the Old Testament paints that is to be fulfilled and was fulfilled in Jesus through his sacrifice. Boy, if we could get a hold of that. But see, we've been taught so much other stuff. If you can get, T.L. Osborne said, T.L. Osborne was a, a, he started off on the mission field as a flat failure. He came, went to the mission field, got nobody saved, got no results, got nothing that happened and came back after just a few months with his tail between his legs and just, you know, ashamed. It's also interesting to to note that he never had any point in time where he ever uh, could point to in his life where he knew he was called. He just had a desire to go to the mission field and help people. I believe that was a call, but there was never a vision that he had from Jesus or whatever. But he's in his little apartment back in the States wondering, what am I going to do now? I'm a failure as a missionary. What am I going to do now? And he went out just as a teenager. I think he was 16 years old when he went to the mission field. And so he comes back after a few months, just a flat failure. Doesn't want to see anybody that he knows because he doesn't want to have to explain what a failure he's been. And he comes across some information. And it was just a, a, what you and I might consider to be a fluke regarding information about being filled with the Holy Ghost. He got filled with the Spirit. Came across a little tract, almost, we would assume, by accident, but we know better. And he got filled with the Spirit. And when he got filled with the Spirit, then he started reading the book of Acts. And when he read the book of Acts, now that he's filled with the Spirit, the Holy Ghost started telling him and teaching him and speaking to his heart about what to do when he goes back to the mission field. And he went back and turned out to be one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church ministering to thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people at a time. He was the one that devised uh, the, the, the system of praying for people in mass. And he, he did that out of necessity because there would be 100,000, even up to 500,000 people at one of these crusades that he'd have, open-air crusades that he'd have in Africa or some part, other part of the world. And there's no way you can get to everybody. And so he would just bring somebody up on the platform you know, one or two selected people up, to, up front, and he would pray for them and let people see God heal them. And then he would turn to the crowd and he'd say, now, I can't come out and, and pray for you, but I don't have to because Jesus is where you are and Jesus is the one that's the healer. And so he'd just pray for everybody as a, as a group, and a, as a whole. And people would start getting saved, uh, people would start getting healed by the thousands, tens of thousands. There would just be, it would turn into a riot 
And there were many cases where he didn't even have a chance to find out what was going on. They had to usher him off the platform and get him out of there because people were tearing the place up. They were so excited and jumping up and down and all this other kind of stuff, it became dangerous. And so over the years, they, they tried to, you know, create a little bit of crowd control and, and stuff like that. But he, he, out of necessity, created this praying in mass. Nobody had ever done that before. And so people realized just by the ministry that he had and the way that God was using him, people realized that, that as long as God's there, you didn't have to be there in person and lay hands on the sick and anointing with oil or anything like that. That's the only way people were ministering at that point in time. Later in his, uh, in his ministry, or well, really, I guess it was at the height of his ministry. It was about in 19, oh, around the 19, late 1950s, I guess. When the healing revival was going on, and and uh, and he had just single-handedly almost turned some countries upside down. Uh, and and there are still a lot of remnants of his his crusades in certain parts of the world now, but there are other countries that have completely forgotten that anything ever happened, and and um, there's no, the next generation never was affected. But anyway, the uh, the Assembly of God had a convention one year. Assemblies of God was the foremost Pentecostal. A denomination at that time may still be I guess I guess they would be but anyway they had a convention at that time and they had a missions conference and so they they uh, wanted to know from brother Osborne they had arranged for him to come and they said we want a question and answer time you can preach if you want to but what we're really interested in is to have a question and answer session with you with some of our other missionaries because people want to know how you're having the success that you're having so we got there in this uh, this conference and it was uh, set up kind of like a question and answer thing, but the, the leader of the denomination started off with the first question. He said, I don't know if we'll ever get to any other questions or not because this is the one that we really want to know from the benefit of our missionaries. Why is it that our missionaries aren't getting results worldwide and you have results that are just beyond measure, beyond imagination in your ministry? What's the difference in what you're doing and what we're doing? So Brother Osborne sat there, he's sitting at a table, and he had a microphone in front of him, and he said, well, he said, it's very simple. He said, if I can beat you to a country, I can have revival. If I can get to, where, to a country that you've never been to, where I can tell the people that Jesus not only saves, but Jesus heals, he said, I'll have healing miracles that you can't, can't even imagine. I'll have testimonies that, that will boggle the imagination. But if I come to a country where you've already been, and some of your missionaries have been there and said, now Jesus saves, and we know that God can heal, but we just don't know what he, you know, you never know the will of God concerning healing. He said, I can't get any healing results in those countries. He said, I can get some people saved, but not the people that I would be able to get saved if they saw the healing power of God at work. See, folks, healing has always been the dinner bell. So if, if from the devil's standpoint, from just a, a logistical standpoint, if he can stop the healing power of God from being manifest, then he can cut down exponentially on the number of people that come into the family of God. It's always been true. It always will be true. So in James 5.14, did I leave you there? Is any sick among you? They're not supposed to be. Now don't take that as condemnation. Take that as God's will for you to be healed. Is there any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over them, him, the sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, folks, this word save is the same word over in Romans chapter 10. Uh, whoever believes 
in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confesses Jesus as Lord shall be saved. This is the same word. And the reason it's the same word is because it was the same action by Jesus on the cross, the shedding of blood on the cross that paid the price for sickness and sin. In other words, healing is just as universal as, as, the, as the removal of sin is, the gift of righteousness is. It's just as universal, and it's just as conditional. Now, we don't look at salvation, what the church world calls salvation, or the gift of righteousness. We don't look at somebody getting saved as a hard thing to do, do we? Anybody ever tell you that it's a good thing to want to get saved, but, man, it's tough to be saved? I sure hope not. If they told you that, they lied to you. No, the Bible says, whosoever will. Jesus said, whosoever uh, ever will, let him come unto me. I will in no wise cast him out or turn him away. In other words, it's easy to get saved. Well, it's easy to get saved from sickness too. Same word. Same action of salvation that removes sin from your life and replaces it with righteousness, removes sickness from your body and replaces it with health. And this is an ordinance of the church. In other words, this is how Jesus is the Lord that healeth thee in the church age. It's not not the only way to get healed. I don't mean to imply that. But this is an ordinance. And ordinances always work. Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, the sick anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, notice it's not the oil that does it, it's not the elders that do it. These are important things because people put, you know, it helps to inspire people's faith, and that's fine, don't have any problem with that. But the healing is not in the elders, the healing is not in the oil. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. Notice the next part. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Why would um, James... Why would James, inspired by the Holy Ghost, throw the forgiveness of sins in there, talking about the church, talking about people that are born again, why would he throw the forgiveness of sins in there along with uh, the the ordinance of the church concerning healing? Because it's the same work, it's the same sacrifice of Jesus, it's the same shedding of the blood of Jesus that provides forgiveness of sins for those of us that have been redeemed and sin has been removed from our lives, but we sometimes miss it. And the blood of Jesus still cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And notice what does it? The same prayer of faith. Heals the sick and forgives sins. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all of his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Who healeth all thy diseases. Both healing and forgiveness or the gift of righteousness is universal. It is not unconditional. But it is universal. But the good news is the conditions are easy to meet. Simple to meet the conditions. Just believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Amen.